Hey, gorgeous lady. How you doing? Hello, lovely. I'm fucking amazing. How the fuck are you? I'm so much better now that I'm here with my psychic sister, Abby. Yes. Always. We're constantly psychic sistering. I mean, yeah. (laughs) It's so funny because we have such minimal interactions other than this. Yes. It's like becomes so clear that we're always on the same wavelength. It's insane. It's great. I love it. I love it. What have you been up to this week besides working? Like an insane person because that's your life. (laughs) Yes. Working like an insane person. Uh, I got to go see a show with Donna over the weekend uh, (gasps) called Peter Pan Goes Wrong. Oh. Yeah. That sounds very interesting. Yeah. So there is this theater company in the UK that has created a goes wrong brand. Okay. So the first show, which I adore and have auditioned for five times because it would be the fantasy of my life to be in. Oh my God, what? It's called The Play That Goes Wrong. And it's it's exactly that. It's so funny. It's so brilliant. It's And it's just every possible thing that like your biggest nightmare as an actor, like double it. And that's what this show is. It's like set pieces falling, someone getting knocked out, someone else having to come in with the script, people not remembering their line. Like it's so, so funny and so brilliantly done. So Peter Pan goes wrong because the other one is like a murder mystery. Okay. Right. The play that goes wrong is a murder mystery, but it's like completely like you don't even have to follow the plot because it doesn't, it's completely irrelevant. So like, you're just watching everything go wrong and how funny it is. Then that became really popular. And then they did like a a TV show of like the show that goes wrong and and they have done other shows in the UK. So then they recently did Peter Pan Goes Wrong, which is the same production company as putting on a children's production of Peter Pan. And, you know, now you have rigging and shit. So like, you know, it's people being upside down and being flung across the stage and set pieces falling. And it's like a rotating stage. So then it's like different sets are like, you know, at the wrong. Oh my God, that's a nightmare. And my favorite part, so they have a narrator who who's like wheeled out on a chair and as like, I guess, a promotional stunt casting type of thing. Uh, Neil Patrick Harris plays the narrator for like a month and a half. So we got to see him. <gasps> that's great. That's really cool. I have one question and one question alone for MPH. And that is, how dare you? The bone structure in his face <laughs> is just like chiseled, chiseled from the gods. He's so funny. He's so brilliant. He was like the best part of the show, realistically. Like he he played more the straight man role, but it was so funny. There's a, a part because he also plays like different characters in the show as well, but it's like a known thing of like, it's a known thing that they're switching out costumes. Okay. And like, you know, they bring out the chair and he's like not completely switched into his other costume yet. So he's in his underwear and I'm like, MPH, how dare you? Oh my God. Oh my God. (laughs) He can get it. Yeah. Could you share a little bit of anything, the talent, the looks, the humor with like literally anyone else? Like he just has like a monopoly on all of it. He's really fantastic. I do enjoy him in in everything I've ever seen him in, honestly. I mean, I saw him in Hedwig years ago. And that, I remember that was the hottest ticket on Broadway. And at the time, was, <laughs> at the time uh, before Hamilton, it was the most expensive ticket I'd ever bought on Broadway. And it was like $250. Oh, shit. And I was like, oh my God, that's come and gone, obviously. But uh, yeah, you're like, <laughs> that's nothing now. The, the days of $250. And it was so 
he was so incredible and captivating and just, and it's not even that thing of like, you're looking at him because he's famous. It's, he's famous because you can't take your fucking eyes away from him. Yeah. He has that it factor. Because he's incredible. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Totally. So that was a lot of fun. I I watched most of our shows. I didn't, I didn't catch up on the latest succession. I saw the last one that I missed. Yes. Which I love that you texted me all of your reactions throughout I told you. it. Because that was my fucking favorite. Johnny and I literally rewatched it. Like <laughs> we like started rewatching it very shortly after you started watching it. And I was like, so fucking here for your, all of your reactions. It was exactly my reactions to everything. I also don't know if you know this, but Johnny texted me the entire next day. Did he? About the show. <laughs> yes. I didn't know that, but yes. that's the cutest thing I've ever heard. I love that so much. Yes. He uh, he texted me a line just out of emojis. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. But I knew exactly what it was. And I was like, uh, stop sending your blood to people. Um, <laughs> it was great. It was a lot of fun. That was such an insane, like, plot line of this episode. And I, like, was so here for it and I couldn't get over it. And I was just, like, jaw on the ground when that was revealed. I could not, I could not handle it. No. And, like, Kieran Culkin, that is, there's the scene at the end of that episode. He's so fucking phenomenal in it. It gets you, dude. He is Oh, Ugh. yeah. I loved his uh, like behind the scenes interview yeah. where he was like, I was so focused on the scene because it's such a high emotion scene that I didn't realize we were on these like beautiful mountains mm-hmm. in like the Andes or wherever they were. In and Norway, yeah. In Norway, yeah. And he was just like, I literally like went back up to the mountain to like actually take in the view because I didn't take it in at all while we were doing the scenes because I was just so invested in everything. He goes into it more on the podcast, on the companion podcast, because uh, he was like, uh, he has two kids who are like, I think one and three. And he's like, if I have to be away from my kids for more than a day, I'm fucking upset. Yeah. So he's like, so to go to Norway for 11 days, I was fucking miserable. I was like, it's so beautiful. I was like, fuck this. I hate this. I want to be with my family. I want to be with my kids. That's sweet. It's very sweet. And that, yeah, but he was like not happy. <laughs> But he's like, I do want to go back with my family because it is beautiful. I just was miserable because <laughs> I wasn't with them. Aw, that's really sweet. I like that. I also found out that one of my friends apparently sees him like twice a week. He's like, I'm pretty <gasps> sure Kieran Culkin lives like two blocks away from me. And I'm like, what? What? It's like, stop everything. We need to hang out at your house right now because... Clearly in Brooklyn, girl. Oh, shit. Girl. I would love to just run it run into him on the street. I would not be cool at all. No. And I would definitely make the same face that I make when I see a really cute dog, which probably <laughs> isn't the appropriate reaction to seeing a person. But I know that I would have zero chill in that situation. Yeah, I, re- I, I respect that. I, I saw his hot ones last night. Oh, shit. I feel like I must have seen that because I've watched pretty much all of them, but I... It like just dropped. Like in the last like couple days, I think, or the last week. Okay, maybe I haven't seen that shit. Yeah. Monique. It's a lot of fun. You're up on your hot ones. I Well, it's because... <laughs> Amy and I were talking about this prior to, to hitting record. So I, I'm always like on like meditations and manifestation, all that. So there's a lot of YouTube videos that I watch about it and uh, and just different meditations for whatever, whatever thing. And 
but uh, the algorithm is so fucked because it's like that. And it's like, do you want to watch Hot Ones? Because you've seen that before. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Or like manifest more money. It's like that's... <laughs> Hot Ones, uh, money. money. Can we have both? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So it showed up. I, so I, I don't actively seek out Hot Ones. It was just the algorithm was like, hey, girl. It knew. It knew. It knew. Yeah. I am caught up on Barry. Are you caught up on Barry? I am caught up on Barry. Okay. 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 First of all, Fred Armisen's cameo was <laughs> amazing and yes. hilarious, and I was not prepared for it. So it was great. Kudos, chef's kiss to that. One, because we have to double up because I didn't watch last week. So one, so off of last week's episode, I have absolutely been in an acting class with a psychologically abusive teacher. Absolutely. Difference is, at no point did the teacher apologize for pushing us there. And was like, I just had to get you there. No, they were just abusive. And I remember when (laughs) I was in this class, I was the only professional actor in the class. Like most people had never even taken an acting class before. They were like, oh, this is what, you know, acting is. I'm like, no, this is like straight up abuse, actually. And it was so bad that I remember I I decided to quit acting. Wow. After the class. Yeah, it was really, really bad. It was really, really, really abusive. Holy shit, dude. Yeah. And just like, like she made everything personal. It was, it was very, very abusive. And then, but I had already paid for another class to start the following day for, like at another studio with another teacher. And I didn't want to lose the money. So I was like, fuck it, I'll just show up to the class. And I went to the class and I did, a, you know, a scene. And the, the guy, the, the teacher was like, that was really great. And it was the first time I'd heard that in three months. And I've become really, really good friends with with this uh, one teacher who's like a big deal in, in the industry. And like, I've told him, I'm like, you're actually the reason why I didn't quit acting is because of, of, of you. Oh. Yeah. But I've absolutely been in a fucking psychological abusive acting class. <laughs> so, you know. Traumatizing. Jesus. Oh, yeah. Apparently, everyone is just trying to get that Emmy girl because the performances across all the shows are fucking top tier. They're phenomenal. I know. I'm so happy that I have like both of these shows to entertain myself with on Sunday nights because it literally makes my Sunday nights. Yeah. It's like to be kind of very sentimental. It's like a privilege to be able to experience it. Yes. Honestly. Yeah. And just Anthony Kerrigan, who plays Noho Hank... I know this fucking episode too. Like I rewatched that scene like four times because I'm a psycho. <sighs> no spoilers, but like no shit goes down, and it oh he's phenomenal. He's phenomenal. Oh my god, it was just it was so great. It was so so great, and just it's I just love going back and piecing the thing together. Of like when does this decision happen? And there's a thing that happens earlier in the episode that you is just a misdirect that you think <gasps> that Noho is, is like stressed about this other thing, but really it's, yes! it's and it's like, no. Uh, and I just, I love all of that. I love all that. And even I'd like to go back to, to the other episode of Succession for a second. I'm not positive of this, but did you catch that Roman's wearing Logan's sweater? No. He is wearing a what? sweater that very much resembles the one that Brian Cox wears in at the very end of the opening credits. The navy sweater. I did not pick up on that at all. Well, now I have to rewatch the episode again. <sighs> okay, twist my arm, Monique. And like, and there, and it, it's also a callback to a scene a few seasons ago when Logan was in the hospital. He asked Greg to go get Logan's sweater. Yes, 
And when he got the sweater, he smelled it. I love all of this shit. I love all of this shit. Fuck, it's so good. So good. Ugh. All right. I gotta rewatch Succession now. Gotta rewatch it. Because I was like, what's up with... He never wears a sweater. Like, fucking... I I understand that they're, like, on fjords and shit. But, like, no one else is wearing a sweater. What's this about? Good eye. Girl. what I do. I'm actually, I'm very impressed right now. Thank you. Like I'm, I'm usually <laughs> slash always impressed with you, but like extra impressed right now. Thank you. It's great. I caught up on Yellow Jackets. I'm up to date on that. I am still super behind. It's that is fucking cuckoo bananas. <sighs> All right. Maybe I'll do that this week. I have a little bit of time. Yeah, girl. Absolutely. And you gotta watch Love and Death, girl. That's the Elizabeth Olsen. Yes. Right? I saw that that had come out. They dropped three fucking episodes. <gasps> what? Girl. Oh, shit. All right. I can get Johnny in on that real quick. He loves her. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yes. Also, it doesn't need to be stated, but I'm going to state it. She is so stunningly beautiful. <gasps> I say it every time I see her. Like, what the fuck? I know that doesn't matter, but she is just it doesn't matter. gorgeous and I can't stop staring at her. Yes. Like she's outrageously talented, but she is so beautiful. Yes. My God. Facts. Like objectively. She's just absolutely gorgeous. Yes. That it's a thing that it's like, it's a little distracting. I'm not going to lie. When I'm watching I was it. literally, you took the word I was like, <laughs> distractingly beautiful. Is that too far? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I got it. Like, that's another one. Everyone's gunning for that Emmy. Everyone's nailing it. Kristen Ritter is in it as well. <gasps> oh, I feel like Johnny told me that. I love her. Correct. I really adore her. I used to watch Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23, and that was my fucking jam. Mm. The way they have her done up is so different that I was like, I know I know you, but I can't place who you are. Everyone's great. The big thing that I, is that the show got a little bit of shit about was that Candy, which is the same the same story, essentially, was released on Hulu with Jessica Biel last year. But I think this one's better because Candy didn't really go into the, like, people part of the story. So the motivation at the end of, you know, for the crime, like, doesn't make as much sense because it seems like she doesn't really give a fuck. Okay. Whereas this one, it's like, so, it, you know, it's these people are having an affair. And then you just see what it's like when, like, people start having an affair. And, like, what it's like to be, like, into someone and, like, you know— spend hours talking to them and have crushes on them. And like, and that's just not really a thing in candy. So like when the end happens, it's kind of not justified. You're kind of like, it just seemed like you weren't into this. Whereas Elizabeth Montgomery, no, Elizabeth Montgomery, that's, that is bewitched, which is not this. <laughs> Elizabeth Olsen is just, and, and it's uh, David E. Kelly who did um, Big Little Lies, wrote all of the episodes for, and produces this series. And it's just very much like you just, you see what it's like to like go through this thing and have a breakup and like how, like just the the range of human emotions of like that experience. And it's fucking great. Like everyone's nailing it. Jesse Plemons, fucking great. He's great in everything. Everyone's just great. Yeah. Oh, all right. I got to get on that. Girl, girl, I think you'd really be into it. Oh yeah. I mean, you had me at Elizabeth Olsen. As we said, like I'll literally watch anything with her in it. I mean, yes. No hesitation. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's it on my end. Anything else with you? No, that was pretty much all the excitement, all the shows for the week. I was like, Barry ended on quite a little like cliffhanger kind of, and I'm really excited to see what the fuck is going on. 
Yeah. So, okay. So when Johnny and I were talking about the succession episode, he asked a very silly question. He's like, did you watch the featurette at the end? And I was like, Johnny. <laughs> Have you met me? Yes, obviously. I was like, um, I watched the featurette. I listened to the companion podcast. And then I read like four recaps and reviews of what I just saw. Like that is my, <laughs> that is my process for every episode. Yes. You're beautifully obsessive and I love it. I'm obsessive and I need to deconstruct and like pick up and like be like, oh, you know, because there's also the the actor performer part of me who likes figuring all that shit out. So the thing that I am very curious about is the final scene of this last episode of Barry. Every article, because granted, like they, they get uh, advanced screeners up to a certain number of episodes is usually usually reporters do. All of them refer to it as a time jump and not a fantasy or a hallucination. Okay. Which I was like, um... Interesting. That is very decisive. Because it was still kind of like up in my, like up in the air for me of whether or not it was real or... A dream sequence, basically. So I assume because of what has been presented throughout the season, that it was like a dream sequence. But all of the reviews refer to it as a time jump. And I know, as per... Because then I was like, I need to read every single interview with Anthony Kerrigan and Michael Irby, obviously. So I did. I spent a good portion last night doing that. And... They mention that next episode is going to be like the Ronnie episode of last season or two seasons ago, last season. That's just like the random what the fuck episode. Oh. Is basically what next episode's going to be. <gasps> I mean, I love that episode. So I'm fucking here for it. I mean, I hated that episode when I saw it and then I watched it again. I was like, oh, no, this is great. Oh, no, I loved it. <laughs> So we're it, we're in for another uh, a Ronnie esque episode on Sunday. Oh, I can't wait! Mm-hmm. I can't wait. Yeah, yeah. It was quite the quite the tease. I'm not gonna lie. I was like, is this like you know, throw that in in the last two seconds? What the fuck? And I didn't even realize because I watched the two episodes back to back that Barry doesn't appear in the episode until like the last like two minutes. Oh shit! Well, this is me having that realization right the fuck now, Moni. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> Because there's so much else shit going on that it's like, oh, he actually is not in this episode. You're so right. You're so right. Because all the crazy shit happened in the last episode. Wow. Yeah. Right? I that I did not put that together. You're totally right. What a fucking reveal also. Oh my God. I know. I know. Which Bill Hader said that he's all that he's written a movie and he's like into like that it's a horror film and he wants to do it. I'm like, yes, I think you should do that. I think you should. Oh my God. Yeah. I love that journey for you, Bill. Greenlight it. Let's get it made. Right I now. want to watch that now. Thank you. Speaking of horror, though, do you have any horrific paranormal situation? I, it might not be horrific. Cool. That's fine. Because um, I was very traumatized by your story last week. <laughs> the mouse. The mouse. In case no one heard or was aware. <laughs> that wasn't abundantly clear. Yeah. So I thought it had been a while since we had ourselves a celebrity ghost story. Fuck yes! Yes. So we have one today. And apparently I'm still on my sports kick because today's celebrity ghost story is brought to you by former NBA star John Sally. Don't know who that is. 
well, you're going to find the fuck out, Monique. <laughs> and this one is not, not scary. It's short and sweet. So if anyone was concerned that I was going to traumatize you, no, if you need that, listen to last week's episode again. Monique will do it for you. <laughs> Love it. So sources, obviously, Celebrity Ghost Stories, Season 1, Episode 9, an interview with Vlad TV on YouTube, HighTimes.com, PETA.org, and Wikipedia. So in case you've never seen Celebrity Ghost Stories before, Monique, I know you have, they always ask them if they believed in ghosts before whatever happened to them happened. And John said, quote, I've always believed in ghosts. I think this is a spiritual world. I believe that there was more to life than just this life. There had to be spirit life. You had to have a soul. You had to have somewhere to go. I believe it with all my heart, end quote, which I thought was very sweet. So in case you don't know, like I did prior to the story and Monique doesn't know who this is, John Sally was the first player in NBA history to win four championship titles with three different teams, the Detroit Pistons, the Chicago Bulls, and the LA Lakers. He was also the first player in the NBA to win a championship in three different decades. John earned himself the nickname Spider for his long-limbed defensive prowess. After his retirement, John went on to become a successful entertainment personality, hosting sports talk shows and radio programs, as well as appearing in films such as Bad Boys 1 and 2. Oh, shit! Yeah, which his team, when he, after he joined it, like changed their playing style and were known as bad boys. So this actually was very on brand for him. And Confessions of a Shopaholic. <laughs> Those are wildly different films. <laughs> I know. I love it. Those I are love wildly it. different movies. Yes. Correct. He's a versatile actor. Yes. Absolutely. Diversify the portfolio. Absolutely. Keep them on their toes. Thank you. <laughs> Wu-Tang, Monique. I love it. <laughs> I fucking love you. Yes. I love you. Wu-Tang Financials, I will never forget. <laughs> Amazing. He has also appeared as a celebrity judge on one of my favorite shows, RuPaul's Drag Race, and was a consultant on an episode of one of my favorite trashy reality TV shows, Millionaire Matchmaker with Patty Stanger. We all know one saw an alien at a taco truck. That's, how could we forget? I will never forget. <laughs> <laughs> Is this my favorite episode ever? Probably. Yeah. It's up there. <laughs> that honestly was one of my favorite stories. I, I haven't been able to top that alien story, I don't think. And I'm very sad about it. Nor will you. I'll tr I try every single time, but none of them <laughs> will do. be as hysterical as Patty Stanger seeing a Lizzie at the taco truck. Especially because she's a fucking Looney Tune. Oh, 100%. Like even that aside. 100%, Monique. <laughs> So, John Sally was born in Brooklyn, New York on May 16, 1964, and grew up in the Bayview Projects there with his best friend Lloyd. Lloyd was a few years older and was a senior when John was a sophomore, but the two were still very close. They played basketball together all the time, and John said he was at Lloyd's house every day growing up. He said, quote, This was my brother. This was my soulmate. This was my best friend. End quote. Which... That's so sweet. I love that. Yeah. And I love referring to somebody as your soulmate who you are not romantically involved with. Yeah, exactly. Because that is facts. I support this. Absolutely. Yes. After graduating from Canarsie High School, John left Brooklyn to attend Georgia Tech. 
Although John and Lloyd didn't get to see each other much after John left for college in Atlanta, the two still wrote letters to keep in touch. In them, Lloyd would always tell John that it was just the same old, same old back home and that nothing was going on, which John believed was just Lloyd trying to get him to realize that Atlanta was where he needed to be, not in Brooklyn, and that he had a future there. Then, tragically, in 1984, while John was down at Georgia Tech and Lloyd was still in Brooklyn, Lloyd was shot and killed by one of their friends, Rob. Lloyd and Rob's brother had been playfully slap boxing at the time, which apparently Lloyd was really good at. So good that John said he didn't know why anyone would ever want to slap box with him. But what had started out as play fighting quickly escalated, unfortunately, and things suddenly got serious. After he beat up Rob's brother, Rob, who had a gun, jumped in and shot Lloyd once in the heart with a 22. What the fuck? I know. Like slap boxing. To murder? That seems... Disproportionate response. Yes, correct. Just be like, fuck you and leave. Yes. Yes. That's awful. It is awful. Slight more awfulness before we transition. Okay. So Lloyd didn't die right away, and the brothers, not wanting to get caught, hid Lloyd's body in a dumpster behind a wash house where he was later discovered the next morning. Oh, my God. I know. I know. John said he hadn't talked to Lloyd in a while when he got the call and found out his best friend had been murdered. Although Lloyd's death hit him hard, he continued to focus on his basketball career and the following year helped the Yellow Jackets win the 1985 ACC championship. He still holds Georgia Tech's personal foul record and even has his jersey number 22 retired, which is very rare in college basketball. Sure. Apparently. Donna would know, I feel like. Oh, probably. I don't know if she's a college sports person. Oh, Okay, I just assume she knows all the sports. She might be, and I don't, and I don't know. I'm sorry, Donna. We had that. We haven't reached that point in our in our relationship. <laughs> We've only known each other 15 years. That's not what you're interested in, though. I get it. She's not going to talk sports with you. It's only very minimal. We when we <laughs> it. So it's been pouring in New York the last several days, and uh, when we went to the theater, it was especially bad. And she was like, I can't lose this umbrella. It's my Cubs umbrella. And I was like, I got you, girl. <laughs> oh my God, Donna, I love you. That's so cute. <laughs> That's so cute. So after he graduated from Georgia Tech, John was drafted by the Detroit Pistons in the first round of the 1986 NBA draft. Just two years after he was drafted, in 1988, the Pistons made it to the NBA finals for the first time in 32 years. Fuck yeah. Yes. So... Kudos for John here. But after a controversial Game 6 loss, officially they lost the championship to the Lakers in Game 7. That being said, it's impressive just to make it to Game 7. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Like, you only need four to win. They could have put up a fight. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Despite losing the championship, though, John said that that summer was the best summer of his life. He finally had some money. He had new clothes and a new BMW with Spider 22 on the front and back and was enjoying his new life as an NBA star. So, during the summer of 1988, according to John, it was a hot, sexy night in Atlanta, which there are a lot of. Obviously. That's why it's called Hotlanta. Hotlanta! Yes. Yeah. And he and his friend Mike were headed to the popular gentleman's club known as Magic City, mm-hmm. which, for the record, they do not say the name of the club in Celebrity Ghost Stories, and they obviously tactfully just refer to it as a nightclub. I think I know the story. Do you? Probably. You've seen all the episodes. 
I think I know this story. <sighs> and it's amazing if it's the one I'm thinking. I mean, all of the, the celebrity ghost stories are pretty amazing, but they're all great. But yeah, this one got me. I, I loved it so much. And I was like, this, this warms the cockles of my heart. If it's the one I think it is that I'm thinking of, they absolutely don't present it as a gentleman's club. They present it as a night, at a nightclub. Oh, no, no, no. It's literally just a nightclub. I didn't realize until I watched another interview where he says it's Magic City. And then I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I like looked up Magic City and was like, hello, yes, this is a strip club. <laughs> We're in Atlanta. They're known for this. Google says yes. And I was like, oh, that was not mentioned at all prior to this moment. Yeah. Cool. So the club was popping, as the kids say. And when the two got there, they were immediately ushered over to the VIP area, which is by the front of the club. John said he usually doesn't sit down when he's there, but for some reason, he was sitting down that night with his friend Mike. And everyone's coming over to congratulate him on playing the championship against the Lakers, and the two are just hanging out, having a good time. Shortly after they arrived at the club, a very famous R&B singer at the time, who, again, he did not name on Celebrity Ghost Stories, but in this later interview I watched, reveals that it was Bobby Brown. Oh, shit! Yes. Came in after them. Oh, you know, he start he started lots of shit. He was oh. known for starting shit. Yes. That was his whole MO. Yes. Literally, according to John, wherever Bobby went, trouble followed him. No, he's causing the trouble. That's how that goes. <laughs> yes. Quote, he had a lot of drama, end quote. And boy, is that a fucking understatement. Let's be real. I mean, girl. Yes. So Bobby joined them in the VIP area and they bullshit with him for a bit. But it starts to get a little too crowded in there for John. So he and Mike decide to leave VIP. And not long after, some sort of ruckus breaks out. From what John could tell, some guy was trying to get into VIP to talk to Bobby. But Bobby's guys were like, no, you can't come in here. Then things got a little heated. And one of Bobby's guys pushes the guy or smacks him or something. And the guy leaves. But unfortunately, he didn't go far just out to his car to get a gun. Again, disproportionate response. Yes, I literally have in brackets after this gross overreaction because, correct. Just be like, fuck you, call up whatever radio station the next morning, you know, Y100, whatever the fuck, and be like, Bobby Brown's a dick. Yeah. And like, put that's <laughs> right? Make some cash, get like 50 bucks. Don't get a gun to the strip club? Dude. No. You bring singles to the strip club. Come on. That's fucking right. And if you're like a baller, 20s, 50s hondos. Oh, shit. Monique's a baller. I mean, I'm not. I'm not. (laughs) I would like to get to that level because, you know. Yes. Yes. Sex work is work. And strippers. Hard work. And and, and exotic dancers, that's work. And they deserve to be paid properly. Just saying. I salute you for your service. Absolutely. Fuck yeah. Yes. Thank you. Now armed, the man immediately came back in and started shooting at the front where the VIP area was. At the sound of the gunshots, everybody starts ducking and running, and it's chaos. But John and Mike can see that there's an exit right behind them. So Mike yells to John that they need to get out and starts running for the door. John turned to follow him, but as he started to run, he slipped and fell. And at this part of the interview, he laughs a little at himself, and he says, quote, like somebody in a horror film, end quote. That shit happens though. Yes. There's a reason it's a trope. Yes. Like I was in a situation that was very, very scary several years ago. uh, I was out of the country and some crazy shit was happening. And uh, the front door uh, didn't have a latch. You had to lock it with a key. (gasps) And it was literally like every, it was like, I couldn't get it in the, it was like every fucking horror film. Everything was fine. It turned out fine. I'm alive, obviously. But, uh, 
but I was like, this is insane. This is ridiculous that this is happening to me. You're like, why is this happening to me? <laughs> You're like, oh, I understand the cliche now. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I'm sure this was particularly upsetting to him because like he's a fucking athlete. Like yeah. he, yeah, he knows how to run. He's not going to just like trip and fall. And it's not like somebody like ran into him. He just fell. And if he's anything like me in that moment, he's like, is this how I fucking know? <laughs> like, this is what it's going to be. What the fuck? Oh my God. I'm a fucking athlete. I'm a good one too. What the <laughs> fuck? Oh my God. I'm sure. I'm sure that was going through his head. Probably. I mean, yeah. whenever I find myself in a precarious situation of probably uh, like 60, 40, my making, I'll be like, is this it? This is what it's going to be? Yeah. Fuck. God damn it. Of course. <laughs> yeah. So as John's trying to get up, he feels what he thinks is a security guard grab him and physically pick him up. He says the guy was literally carrying him, but low. So his legs were moving, but almost barely touching the ground. Now, as you've probably guessed by the fact that he's a basketball player, John is not a small man. He mm-hmm. is literally six foot 11. Holy fuck. Yes. And he weighs in at just over 250 pounds. So for someone to basically carry him through a crowded club is a hell of a feat. But the security guard manages to carry him all the way to the exit and pushes him out the door. Once he was out, John turned around to see who had saved him and found himself staring at his best friend, Lloyd, who was standing in the doorway as clear as day. I love this. I love this one so much. So much. It's so sweet. It makes me so happy. This is definitely one of those that I had, I had like dog-eared to do in a, in a future episode, but I didn't know who it was. So I was like, how the fuck am I going to find this? So I'm glad that you did it. Cause I love, I love this story. I did. And it's one of those things, like, I didn't recognize the name, but when I saw his picture, I was like, oh, I've definitely like seen this guy before. Like right. he's famous enough that you recognize him just by looking at him. Right, right, right. John was absolutely shocked. Lloyd had been dead for four years by that time. But he said Lloyd's face was exactly as he remembered it. And there was no mistaking that he was looking at his best friend. John said he honestly didn't know what to think. And still not quite believing what he was seeing, he said Lloyd's name. Lloyd then told him to get out of there and close the door behind him. Still in shock, he told Mike that he had just seen Lloyd Harrison. But Mike was just focused on getting the fuck away from there. And he's like, dude, run. We need to get the fuck out of here. John and Mike had been the first ones out the door. And as John stood there, staring in shock, it slammed back open and people started running out. John said as soon as the door opened again, he realized what happened. Somehow, Lloyd's spirit had protected him. After this realization, John and Mike jumped in John's car and hightailed it out of there. While they were driving, John kept insisting that he had just seen his best friend, Lloyd Harrison, and that he'd helped him out of the club. And Mike was like, what are you talking about? And John tells him that he fell when they were running the exit and that someone had lifted him up to help him out the door. Mike, who had been running ahead of him at the time, said he hadn't even seen him fall, let alone somebody help him up. John asked him if he'd seen anyone at the door when they came out, but Mike insisted that he hadn't seen anybody. He'd just seen John run out the door, then stop suddenly and turn around and look at the door, but that no one else had been there. But John said, quote, I know what I felt. I know what I saw. End quote. And according to John, what he felt wasn't a quote unquote spiritual lift up. He said he literally felt two big hands on his shoulders carrying him through the club. 
and blocking him from whatever bullets would have been hitting him. On Celebrity Ghost Stories, John said that he's gone over the incident a lot over the past 21 years and believes that because Lloyd was killed by a gunshot, his spirit didn't want him to die that way too. The one time someone was shooting at him, Lloyd saved him from having the same fate. According to John, that was the closest to death that he's ever been and firmly believes that he wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Lloyd's spirit saving him. And just in case you're thinking, well, it happened at a club, so maybe there was alcohol or drugs involved. Absolutely not. John took his health very seriously. He has been a vegan since 1991 and didn't smoke or drink or do drugs of any kind. Wow. I mean, you can't be like a peak athlete and be doing all that shit. No. He said the first time he ever smoked weed was in 2000 in his last month as a Laker. (laughs) Since then, he's become an outspoken advocate for cannabis legalization and has used marijuana medically to manage the pain from his years spent playing basketball professionally. Sure. When asked if he still stands by the story in a 2022 interview, John said, quote, dude, I'm telling you, end quote. And then he just shakes his head like, I know it sounds crazy, but it happened. And the interview is literally titled, John Sally doubles down on his celebrity ghost story about shooting at Magic City. (laughs) I love it. Yes. He is not backing down. It's been fucking 40 years almost. Although that wasn't the last time he went to Magic City, John said he always stayed close to the doors after that and noted that he's never once seen a security guard posted by that door. John said most people he shared the story with thought he was joking, but whenever he retells it, the hairs on his arms stand straight up. He said, quote, I never forgot it, and it was as clear as day. I'm not delusional. I didn't think I saw him. I'm not hoping I saw him. I saw him. And that spirit, that being, my best friend, obviously to this day, saved my life. It was as real to me as possible. That's my story, and it's the truth, end quote. And that is the story of former NBA star John Sally and the time his best friend saved his life from beyond the grave. I love that story so much. I had so many waves of chills. <sighs> I'm glad. I love that story. Me too. And I thought that was like a nice, fun palate cleanser after the trauma of a mouse fetus inside of an egg. <laughs> Sorry Which, like, that, I'm, I'm not still, you know, obsessing about. We're not over it. No. We're not over it. You know, years ago, I remember having a conversation with someone about, like, you know, ghosts or, you know, or peeking beyond the veil, whatnot. And the, the uh, agreed upon theory is that it, it takes a, a tremendous amount of energy to, like, yes. do that. Yes. To move something or show up or whatever. And I remember talking about this with a friend of mine and he was like, because he's had experience, his, his father passed away many years ago and he's had experiences where his father's come through, like almost like possessed other people to give messages to him. Oh, like fuck. There was even like a date he was on and he was like hooking up with a guy and then like, it, it was, it was pretty oh, awkward. that's weird. Never, yeah. never do that, please. Yeah. And the guy has no clue, like doesn't recall the thing happening. That's traumatizing, actually. Yeah, well, that was extraordinarily disconcerting. With time, he was like, how much love does a person have to have to be able to do that? To literally pierce the veil and, like, do that. So how much love... So much. And, you know, yeah. Like, physically impact matter in the universe. Like, I can't even imagine. 
Like that's true friendship right there. Yeah, to be like, I am not going to have my soulmate, my best friend go out the way that I did. Absolutely the fuck not. Yes, yes. I love that so much. I know. Thank you so much for that story. I love that. Oh my gosh, of course. I was like, I, it really made me happy. And it was one of those, like, I was going to do a really scary one and try to traumatize everybody at first. And then I was like, you know what? I actually just really like this one and it's really sweet. And I think everyone (laughs) deserves like a nice, sweet story this week. After I traumatized everyone with the mouth, mouth fetus. Yes. Slightly. I can never drink hibiscus tea again. It's fine. (laughs) Girl, you can. Just like, don't get it from some rando at a fucking party. That's fair. That's very fair. Yeah. So yeah, I hope that our friendship is enough that at some point I will be able to cross the veil to save you if that should ever need happening. One, same. Two, I'm definitely going to need it. Let's be fucking real. I make a lot of poor life choices. <laughs> so <laughs> that would come in super clutch. <laughs> uh, it happens. And same. Girl, after my, my witchy retreat at the end of the year, I'm going to tell you all the secrets that I find out. I can't wait. Girl, me neither. Fuck. I'm going to get like the the witch notes. It's like the cliff notes of <laughs> witching. Love it. That's great. So now that we've had that lovely, uplifting paranormal story, do you have a horrifying true crime for me? I do. So it has been brought to my attention by myself that... <laughs> I told me. Amy has a monopoly on traumatizing you lovely folk. And I've been soft lately. Is that true? I didn't think that was true at all. I mean, I listened to the episode. So yeah, absolutely. That's fair. You always go really fucking hard. (laughs) And and I've been kind of soft. In the immortal words of Mama RuPaul, uh, I'm stepping my pussy up. So. Oh, fuck. Okay. Gert your loins. I'm going to buckle the fuck up because, yeah. Buckle the fuck up. Get a drink. Pause. Get a drink. Get a, any any sort of thing to help you out. Because this story's fucking horrifying. Yay! To the <laughs> point that when it gets really bad, I will regale you with fun factoids. Oh, damn. That's when you know it's real bad. I will regale you with fun factoids from the 1985 cinematic classic, Back to the Future. You're welcome. Oh, I love when you have a theme for your factoids. (laughs) So good. So right off the top, this takes place in Poland. I don't speak Polish. I'm going to fuck this up. And while I did date a Polish guy for five months, I love you guys, but I'm not going to fall in that grenade and reach out to him. So (laughs) you're just going to have to. (laughs) Uh, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. (laughs) Especially since Amy knows who it is. I know who it is. And no, I don't blame you. So thank you. Thank you for being a, a... patient with my wild uh, mispronunciations. So sources, wikipedia.com, thefirstnews.com, noise, I think it is, N-O-I-Z-Z dot P-L. Uh, I also know that the polls love a Z. So I know it's a Z. Um, so I don't know if that's, I, I don't know. I'm sorry. That's a Polish uh, website. Also lots of Google Translate, lots of Google Translate, um, because there's not a lot of information about this in English. Terrasgrove.wordpress.com, thoughtnova.com, paranormalcatalog.net, Reddit, thesun.co.uk, mysteriesareunsolved.com, talkmurder.com, and the podcast The Evidence Locker. Katarzyna Zawada was born in Poland on June 1st, 1976. 
Karazina, or Kazia as she was known, was an introvert who didn't open up to people easily and had difficulty making friends. She was known to have only one or two close friends. That being said, the only child was incredibly close with her father. In addition to spending lots of time together, the pair loved to go hiking. Then in January 1996, on one of their hiking trips, Kazia's father had an accident and slipped and fell, resulting in a spinal cord injury. The wound ended up causing an illness, which I couldn't get any specifics on, but the illness ended up taking Kazia's father's life. Kazia was never the same after her father's death. She blamed herself for the accident and fell into a deep depression. Kazia lived with her mother, Marta, in Noahuta, the easternmost district of Krakow. While time had passed since her father's untimely death, Kazia's depression didn't seem to get any better. And at one point, she had attempted to take her own life. This obviously concerned her mother, who insisted that Kazia go to therapy to help with her depression and suicidal ideations. Marta would always meet Kazia at her therapy appointments to make sure that her daughter was attending them. But that being said, Katazarina never missed a session. She was punctual and reliable. And the thing is, she wanted help for her depression. So she was happy to be there. The 23-year-old was enrolled at Jagiellonian University in Krakow with the intention of getting a degree in psychology. It appears that Kazia had hoped to follow in her mother's footsteps as she was a child psychologist herself, but that didn't take. Kazia changed her major to history before eventually settling on religious studies. The shy and introverted Kazia failed to make friends at university. Fellow classmates described her as a loner who always sat alone in the back of the class during lectures. Kazia did have a high school friend named Anna, who had a huge influence on her. Anna gave Kazia a copy of Tom Wolfe's book, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, a nonfiction novel that presents a firsthand account of the experiences of Ken Kessie and an LSD community who called themselves the Merry Pranksters, who traveled across the United States in a colorfully painted school bus. The book featured tales of constant acid trips and encounters with the Grateful Dead. The New York Times hailed the counterculture work as faithful and quote-unquote essential in depicting the roots and growth of the hippie movement. And Kazia was entranced with the book. She loved the stories, the hippie lifestyle and philosophy it presented, and she basically considered herself to be a 1990s hippie. Her newfound love of the hippie movement gave her an appreciation for life and love. She even became a deadhead. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Which to think of in like 1990s in Krakow, Poland is like a vibe. (laughs) Those seem very incongruous. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the thing she loved most of all was listening to music. When she wasn't in class, Kazia could regularly be found browsing for music at Pod Previzazaka. That's completely wrong. And I'm very sorry. There's many Zs and Ws in this. A student club with a record store and a restaurant where Kazia often hung out. It was one of the hottest spots for people who loved music because people could buy or trade CDs and cassettes. On November 12th, 1998, Marta arrived at the doctor's office to meet Kazia for her 6 p.m. therapy appointment, as she'd always done. But this time, Kazia didn't show up. And seeing as how her daughter had never not shown up for an appointment, Marta knew immediately that something was terribly wrong. So let's put a pin in this for a second and talk about Poland for a second. Poland has historically been one of the most religious countries in Europe. While 
different religious communities exist in Poland, most Poles identify as Roman Catholic, with 91.9% of the population identifying themselves as such in 2018, making it one of the most Catholic countries in the world. But in the late 1990s, it seems that Poland went through its own satanic panic. Horror films and an interest in death, evil, Satan, and the occult became a favorite pastime among the youths in Krakow at this time. As a result, the 90s were apparently the golden age of cults, and many students gave up their lives to join one. I did read this like academic paper that was kind of like, well, you know, they kind of, I mean, not dissimilar to here, that they kind of went crazy with the cult thing of like that anything that was not the norm or or kid acting out in any way was like Satan shit. Yeah. So I don't know what's the level of, of this. Yeah, how much of this is actually right. culty. Right, exactly. So when Kazia no-showed to her therapy appointment, Marta's knee-jerk reaction was that she joined a cult. And I couldn't find any reason why she would automatically leap to that conclusion unless Poland was subjected to the same daytime TV of Geraldo and Sally Jesse Raphael that like all of us were (laughs) because that's what it was all of the time in the 90s. Yes. But she's decided she's joined a cult. So she immediately went looking for her daughter at a Dominican monastery that was known to extract young people from cults, which this is all very dramatic. Wow. Yeah. At the monastery, however, Marta was told that it would probably be a better idea if she just went to the police to report her daughter missing. Hi. Hello. Thank you. Hi. However, in a tale as old as time, Marta was told that a 23-year-old Kasia was an adult and had the right to go missing if she wanted to. No. Mm-hmm. No. No. If I know somebody's supposed to be where they're supposed to be at an appointed time and they always show up and they're not there, red fucking flag. Red flag. Yep. But that if Marta was super insistent on filing a missing persons report on her daughter, she would have to wait 24 hours. So we can give her more time for like clues and leads to disappear. Amazing. Great. Amazing detective work. Yep. Fuck off. Mm -hmm. But police assured Marta to not worry. Kazia would resurface at some point. 24 hours passed. Still no Kazia. But the police really couldn't be bothered to give a single solitary fuck. So... Marta hired a private detective to assist in the search for her daughter. She told them that her daughter was last seen wearing a hooded corduroy jacket with black jeans and red shoes. She told the private eye of her daughter's depression, who took that to mean that Kazia had more than likely killed herself, and they were just looking for a body at that point. Not only that, apparently youth suicides had been on the rise during the prevalence of cults and Satanism in the community. And the fact that Kazia went missing during quote-unquote depressing autumn supported the detective's theory that the 23-year-old had died by suicide. But Marta wasn't buying it. Yes, Kazia was suffering from depression, but she was functioning. Not only that, her adoration of the hippie culture had granted her a new love and appreciation for life. On two separate occasions, Marta received an anonymous phone call from a man who wanted to meet her at the Krakow Square with information about her daughter's whereabouts. Marta was desperate for any leads regarding her daughter, but her private investigator advised her against going, saying that it was more than likely a prank call and that if she showed up, she could be putting herself in danger. Turns out that they found out that the caller was a prank call, which I don't understand people who do that. How 
fucked in the head do you have to be to fuck with somebody and think you're pulling a prank on them when they are genuinely concerned for the welfare of their missing child? Yeah. Like, you know, I guess it's that, that thing that it's a good thing that we don't know why people do that because we just, our brains can't go there because it's like, why would you ever do that? It's awful. It's so awful. Marta put up missing persons posters of Kasia at her university and around central Krakow while someone told her that they saw Kasia on a bus to the outskirts of Krakow. The witness wasn't sure if it had been before or after she'd gone missing. Marta and her private investigator had nothing. Kasia was missing and no one knew anything about it. Two months went by without any leads. Then late one night in early January 1999, a tugboat named the Elk was cruising the Vistula River in Krakow. As it approached the dock, the propeller on the boat stopped working. Now, this wasn't particularly odd, as floating garbage in the Vistula River would occasionally get stuck in the propeller, disabling it. The captain of the Elk, Captain Mazislaw, floated the short distance and secured his tugboat and decided to deal with the issue the following morning. On the morning of January 6th, the captain made his way back to the boat. It was still dark out, And given that it was Poland in January, the captain would have to deal with his propeller issue in sub-zero temperatures, which, fuck. Oh, Jesus. Girl. No, there is no wetsuit or dry suit that is ever going to allow me to do that and feel comfortable. Well, it seems like he didn't necessarily have to get into the water, which we'll we'll get into. Still, this is all very suboptimal. Still awful. Yeah. And he feels the same way because he immediately regrets not handling the propeller issue the night before. But... For better or worse, here we are. The captain enlisted the help of his deckhand to help dislodge whatever was stuck in the propeller. When they opened the hatch, they expected to find a tire or a tree branch. But what they came across was something different. The men pulled out what looked like a long sack wrapped in a piece of clothing. The object was nondescript, pale in color, made of a thick fabric, perhaps leather, and emitted a very foul odor. Then the captain saw something that made him do a double take. On the sack was a human ear. (gasps) Oh no. Girl, you don't even know. With a piercing where an earring used to be. But the ear wasn't attached to the leather sack. It was part of it. Oh my God. And that's when they realized that the pale leathery object wrapped in fabric that was stuck to the propeller was the skin of a female body. (gasps) Oh, not the body like bloated from, oh my God. There was no body, just the skin that had been sliced off with surgical precision and sewn back together. Oh my God. Okay, I'm drinking. That is so traumatizing. I, the chills, I can't even express to you, Monique. Uh, let's do, let's do a, let's do a fact because I was going to wait after the next paragraph because the next paragraph is equally terrible, but let's do a, a, a back to the future fact, right? Right. Meow. So most people know this, but Eric Stoltz was initially cast as Marty McFly, even though Michael J. Fox was Robert Zemeckis's first choice to play Marty at the time Fox was working at the sitcom called family ties and they wouldn't release Fox to do back to the future. So Zemeckis had no choice but to go through the typical casting process, and he eventually ended on Eric Stoltz. But the thing is, is that Stoltz, like, didn't get Marty at all, and he wasn't getting the laughs because 
apparently he thought that it was a drama. He told Leah Thompson, everyone's laughing, but it's not a comedy. It's a tragedy. My whole family remembers a different history to what I do. It's really very sad. And the thing is, a lot of people know that Eric Stoltz uh, was originally cast as Marty McFly, but they don't realize that he filmed six weeks of the movie as Marty McFly. Really? He filmed most of the movie, which you can find stills and footage of online. That's crazy. I had no idea. Mm -hmm. Zemeckis finally got the go-ahead to fire Eric Stoltz and then went back to Family Ties and asked again if they could release Michael J. Fox to do the film. Apparently, the first time Family Ties did not let Fox read the script, but this time they did, and he loved it, of course, and he begged Family Ties co-creator Gary Goldberg to let him make the movie. Goldberg relented on the condition that the Family Ties schedule was not to be interrupted. This meant that Michael J. Fox had to work on Family Ties and Back to the Future at the same time, going on just three hours of sleep per night. He rehearsed Family Ties from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., then rushed to the Back to the Future set, where he would rehearse and shoot until 3.30 a.m. And this schedule lasted for two full months. Damn. And you would never tell it from the movie because it's fucking incredible. No, it's great. So, there you go. And correct casting choice, yes. Correct casting choice. All right, it's going to keep getting bad. So, uh, here we go. The thighs and neck had been neatly cut away, reaching only as far as the left ear. The face and arms were missing as well as the victim's nipples. There was a large curving seam that went from under the right breast to the left shoulder, and it looks almost identical to Buffalo Bill's skin suit in Silence of the Lambs. (gasps) No. (sighs) Yeah, yeah, except it's missing nipples. That's like the only difference. This is so upsetting. Yeah, I know. The way the skin had been put back together with a hole on the one side made it evident that whoever made it intended to wear it as a suit. Oh my God, Monique. I think you take the cake for most traumatizing story. This is, this is so horrifying. This is worse than any of my cannibal stories, hands down, already. The Back to the Future script was rejected more than 44 times. What? Yeah, can you fucking believe that shit? No. Damn, all right. The screenwriter said, quote, the script was rejected over 40 times by every major studio and by some more than once. We'd go back when they changed management. It was always one of two things. It was, well, this is time travel and those movies don't make any money. We got that a lot. There's a lot of sweetness to this. It's too nice. We want something raunchier, like Porky's. Why don't you take it to Disney? He tries to fuck his mom. Was that not raunchy enough? Sorry. Well, yeah, guess what? When they took it to Disney, they were like, I'm sorry, he's trying to fuck his mom. So no. (laughs) To Roger for Disney. Police immediately descended on the Vistula River, searching for the rest of the body belonging to the unidentified female. On January 14th, a week later, police divers found fragments of clothing, including pieces of jeans and a flannel shirt with one square cut out. Okay. Very weird. Trophy, maybe? That's what I assumed, realistically. Yeah. Okay. The flesh of a buttock and a leg that had been cut below the knee were found near a hydroelectric dam, also on the Vistula. DNA technology was still pretty new in Poland in 1999. This was the first time in Polish history that DNA was used to establish the identity of a victim. And DNA confirmed that the skin belonged to 23-year-old student Katarzyna Zawada. 
The case that appalled the nation was dubbed Silence of the Lambs Poland, but police gave the case the codename Skora, which translates to skin. (gasps) Oh, no. I like when they have like the cute, funny nicknames that don't have any relevance to the case. Yeah, like the Flying Eagle or whatever the fuck. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes. Like Operation Goldfish or some shit. I don't need Operation Skin. No. Yeah. Uh, Some places said that it was leather, that it translated to leather. But either way. Either way, it's... It's awful. Don't be so on the nose. Yeah. 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 A little subtlety, please. Please, yeah. It's believed that the skin had been in the water for two to three weeks at the time of the discovery. But Polish authorities knew that they were in over their head. They had never seen a case of human skin detached from the entire body and knew that they would need all the help that they could get. So forensic experts were brought in from the FBI and forensic psychiatrists from all over Europe. Pathologists noted that the body had four separate puncture wounds, one under each armpit and one on each inner thigh. Wounds that were made to let her bleed out. And... While this cannot be verified conclusively, and I can't find any information as to how or why this next conclusion came to be, pathologists believe that Cassia was skinned alive. <gasps> no. Yeah. Oh. All of the uh, Google searches I did absolutely put me on some kind of list for the government. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 100%. But let's get into what being skinned alive is like. Oh, God. Oh, no, Monique. Oh, okay. It's real bad. It's real bad. I'm going to keep drinking more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, that's why I gave the y'alls, y'all should grab something because this is where we are. Being skinned alive, also known as flaying, was first documented around 800 BCE and in just about every century since. It was practiced by the ancient Aztecs, the ancient people in Greece, China, and Africa, and was performed all over medieval Europe. This form of torture was reserved as punishment for traitors and other heinous criminals. Oh my God. Torture that involved flaying would begin with specific and calculated cuts. Historically, the first area of skin peeled off would be the face. What? What? I d- Back would have been my fucking go-to. Oh, the face? Oh, God. I'm assuming if it's torture, that's the worst. Oh, I mean, yeah. I, would, I don't know. Yeah, that makes Never sense. experienced this, obviously. Ooh. After that, the body would be scored in various places to allow easy removal of the skin in one piece. These cuts would be incredibly deep and extend through multiple layers of skin in order to reach the muscle itself. Reportedly sharper knives made the process less excruciating for the unlucky person being flayed. Because nerve endings extend deep into the skin and muscle, flaying is a particularly painful process. The ripping motion of removing large portions of skin meant that nerve endings were torn rather than cut, making the pain arguably much worse. Although the initial sensation of having the skin ripped off would be agonizing, the pain would have been temporary. The process of flaying would damage both the nerve endings and the fatty layer around them. Because of this, the body would begin to go numb, assuming the victim didn't go into shock first and lose consciousness. While being skinned alive always results in death, it didn't necessarily come quickly. Despite blood loss, shock, and loss of consciousness, there are reports of individuals living for days after being skinned alive. Oh, 
God, that's horrible. In these cases, the victim eventually succumbed to infection or hypothermia. Oh my God, just make it quick. I just want to die quickly if that's ever happening to me. That's so awful. Doc Brown originally had a chimpanzee. Oh! Back to the future. Yep. They 100% should have kept that in. Well, so here you go. So... Sid Sheinberg, the head of Universal, was anti-chimpanzee. They can be very violent. So, okay, I got that. Safety. One, yes. But that's not that's not the issue here. <laughs> he just didn't like chips. He told the screenwriter, quote, I looked it up. No movie with a chimpanzee ever made any money, end quote. Okay. And screenwriters Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis said, quote, what about those Clint Eastwood movies? Every which way but lose, any which way you can. And he said, quote, no. That was an orangutan. So we have a dog. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. That is so ridiculous. It is. And I'm here for it. I needed that though. That was a moment of levity in this awful, awful situation. I know, girl. Psychological experts also speculated as to the why the killer removed Kazi's nipples. They believed it indicated that the perpetrator was a man with some sort of sexual dysfunction who wanted to be a woman. So by making a skin suit, And by literally climbing into a female's skin, he could fulfill his fantasy. They also noted the precision with which the skin had been removed. The killer had taken his time, which also indicated to authorities that it was the skinning in which he derived the most pleasure. But that was kind of all authorities had. While there had been partial skinnings and dismemberment in previous cases, there had been nothing like this. Even experts at the FBI were dumbfounded. The closest thing to this was Ed Gein, but that happened 40 years earlier. And he had made his vest of human skin from the bodies of dead women who resembled his mother. He didn't skin anyone alive. The murder was reminiscent of the work of fictional serial killer Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs, which was released seven years prior to Kazia's disappearance. But if the killing had been inspired by the film, then why was Kazia chosen as a victim? While she didn't have any friends, she didn't have any known enemies either. Investigators then thought that maybe the fact that Kazia was majoring in religious studies might be a clue. In the days leading up to Kazia's disappearance, an article about St. Bartholomew was published in a Polish magazine. St. Bartholomew was an apostle and martyr who was skinned alive and beheaded in religious persecution. So I know nothing about St. Bartholomew, and then I look this up. He's always depicted both in statue form and in painting form, as holding his flayed skin, like literally face and all. No! Or the flayed knife with which he was skinned. Religion is fucking dark. Girl! Like real fucking dark. Jesus Christ. Literally. Literally. (laughs) Oh my God. When I saw it, I was like, what the fuck? Which is wild because there's a St. Bart's on like Park Ave. Yeah, I was going to say. I've definitely filmed there and I didn't notice a saint fucking holding a skin suit, but apparently that's the vibe. (laughs) One does seem to want to block that out. I feel, I see that. One, yes, but also I don't think you forget that shit. You know what I mean? That's very true. Like I went to Catholic school for most of my life and my younger brother's four years younger than me. And apparently it was the type of school that you had to be like interviewed by the principal before they accepted you, which whatever, like jerk off motion. So my younger brother was five because he's trying to get into first grade, right? And in Catholic schools, they have crucifixes in every classroom, in every room, right? Standard. 
And we have one in our house, like by the door, but that's kind of it. And in the middle, <laughs> in the middle of, of uh, my younger brother's interview with the principal, he was like, do you have nightmares a lot? And she goes, no, why? And he's like, I would, because you have these crucifixes of Jesus being murdered in every single room. And that shit is traumatizing. He was five and he's like, yeah, I fucking remember that shit. Trauma. That's kind of hysterical. I mean, a saint holding a skin suit. Yeah. Investigators looked into Kazia's last months alive, trying to find anything that would lead them to her killer. Kazia had recently dyed her hair blonde from black and had undergone a weight loss regime. Not only that, they discovered that Kazia had skipped classes for three weeks prior to her disappearance. Her mother, Marta, was completely unaware of this as every day, Kazia went about her normal routine. She would wake up, have breakfast, get dressed, and leave for what Marta assumed was school, then returned home at the same time as usual. Marta had no reason to suspect that she was being deceived by her only child. During those last three weeks, Kazia was seen walking around Market Square in Krakow's Old Town. Investigators were able to establish that she had visited cinemas, browsed through records at a music store, and wandered around a bookstore. Perhaps it was around this part of town that she met her killer. Because of her routine nature, police concluded that she felt comfortable and she was not acting out or breaking down. She was killing time doing things she loved. Investigators also began to suspect that maybe Kazia was seeing someone romantically, given the physical changes and cutting class. Then detectives came across a disconcerting idea about her weight loss. Was the killer possibly grooming her before she died, encouraging her to lose weight so that the excess skin would be perfect for a skin suit? Oh my God. Okay. So I personally think that that's a bullshit theory. Okay. Only because. As someone who knows uh, several people who've undergone like uh, like lap band and and gastric bypass, gastric bypass. Yeah. From what I understand, you only have excess skin when you lose weight very quickly. Yeah, but if you lose it at a normal pace, it just kind of you know it's elastic, so it kind of shrinks with you. Your skin, yeah, bounces back. Right. So I don't I don't buy that personally. Okay. I think that might be a little sensational reporting, but that makes me feel a little better. Some of the world's top criminal profilers were asked to draw up a profile of the perpetrator. They agreed that the killer was a male in his 20s or 30s who was severely mentally disturbed. I literally could have told you that also. <laughs> no, he was totally sane and normal. He was like a cool dude. No. You know, I'm like, this dude is fucked up. He has severe problems. I have a drama degree, guys. I got it. He was a sadistic psychopath with a narcissistic personality and above average intelligence whose motive was sadistical and sexual. He liked to go hunting or fishing and most likely worked as a surgeon, butcher, veterinarian, or tailor. Profilers believe that the perpetrator probably stalked his victim before he chose her to see if her skin would fit him. Oh, the visceral reaction that just went through my body at you saying that. Mm -hmm. Ugh. And as a result, probably had a similar build to the five foot six victim. After approaching her, he gained her trust by building a relationship based on her interests, like music, going to the movies, and going to bookshops. He was believed to be a recluse with fetishes, specifically the desire to be female. The brutality of the murder also indicated that it was personal, that the killer acted out of anger and jealousy that the victim was female and that he wasn't one, not because he necessarily like, like a rage killing. 
interesting. This crime was what experts call an equivalent murder, where a killer gets the same satisfaction a normal person would get from having sex from torturing and killing someone. Most importantly and alarmingly, the profile stated that this type of criminal was usually a repeat offender. And according to Dr. Weisflav Zernikivskif, it's completely wrong, very sorry, an expert in sexual deviancy, it was only a matter of time before the killer found his next victim. Police felt the pressure. They had to find the killer before he struck again. They looked at all other cases throughout Poland where victims were skinned or dismembered and only found one, which had occurred in 1985, over a decade before Kazia's death. A 48-year-old man killed and skinned his wife and teenage son and disposed of their remains in the Vistula River, the same river where Kazia's remains were found. This lead looked extra promising when police discovered that the man had been released from prison, which, what the fuck? I'm sorry. No. 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 Yeah. We're, no. Wait. No. We're not doing that again. Wait. Sorry. That's a one and done. You fuck that up. You do that. Like, There's no three-strike rule here. No. Straight to jail forever. Yeah. And was free at the time of Kazia's murder. They located the man to interrogate him and quickly realized that he could not have committed the crime as he was wheelchair-bound and physically weak. Not only that, his prison psychiatrist said that he didn't have the mental capacity to commit that crime. Again? I, I guess not. Okay. Just making sure, because he did it technically twice before. Yes, So exactly. Yeah. Then, on May 31st, five months after Kazia's skin had been found, Krakow police received a phone call at 1 p.m. from an elderly man who said that there was a body in his basement and that he believed his grandson was responsible for it. Police responded in full force, and the old man showed them where the body was. The body, which had been beheaded and had its scalp skinned, belonged to the old man's 50-year-old son, Vitali. The old man then took law enforcement to the kitchen where his grandson, Vladimir, was dancing and singing. Vladimir had killed his father, decapitated the body, skinned his father's head and face, and fashioned it into a mask, which he wore while also wearing his father's clothes to trick his grandfather into thinking, that he was his father. How blind is his grandfather? Th- that's the thing. Is So why he did this, I have no fucking clue imaginable. Also, what, and I can't stress this enough, the fuck is going on in Poland? Seriously, I'm just picturing the Dwight from the office with the CPR. That's literally what it is. Ugh. And as you said, apparently Vladimir had initially gotten away with the ruse as his grandfather had poor eyesight and couldn't make out that his grandson was literally fucking Leatherface. But it was when the elderly man discovered the body in the basement that he realized that Vladimir had done the unthinkable. Ronald Reagan was a huge fan of Back to the Future. The Reagans hosted a screening of the movie at the White House for both POTUS and the First Lady. And Reagan was such a fan of the movie that he quoted it in his 1986 State of the Union address, stating, quote, where we're going, we don't need roads, end quote. Oh my God, I love that. I had no idea. Me neither. So investigators are like, cool, we got our guy because fucking obviously who the fuck else does this and went on establishing a link between Vladimir and Kasia. They discovered that they were of similar age and the two attended the same university and both studied psychology, although they were not in the same class. Vladimir had enrolled in the school in 1992, the year before Kasia, but dropped out the following year. But- That's it. 
There was absolutely no evidence that the two knew each other or ever even crossed paths. An extensive search of Vladimir's home also pulled up no traces of Kazia. Not only that, Vladimir's murder of his father was deeply personal. In his confession, he told police that he killed his father because he wanted revenge on the fact that he had walked out on Vladimir's mother. And which, again, disproportionate response. Yes. I I could even see the, the, not that I'm condoning it, but I could even see like, I'm going to kill this motherfucker. But the skinning and the face. It's a step too far. Too far. Bridge too far. In any scenario, really. Yep. You know, shouldn't have to be said, but that this is where we are. Yep. We're saying it because apparently people are doing it. Yes. And the thing is, Vladimir simply didn't have a motive to kill Kazia. While some investigators toyed with the idea that maybe Vladimir killed Kazia in preparation to kill his father, their instincts told them that he wasn't Kazia's killer. Police received a tip about a man who was known to stalk women on the banks of the Vistula River and was occasionally seen wearing women's clothing. They looked into it, but there wasn't enough evidence linking him to Kazia, so the trail went cold. DNA technology was rapidly developing, and in 2000, pathologists re-examined Kazia's remains. On her skin, they found DNA that belonged to another person, which I don't understand if, like, how that's possible if it was in the water for two to three weeks. I have no idea. I also don't do that, so I... Grace? I was just going to say, I'm sure Grace knows and could tell us. Let a girl know. Appreciate you. However, it was not a match to anyone in their pool of suspects. Despite profiles saying that whoever killed Kazia would be a repeat offender, no similar crimes were uncovered in Poland in the years following Kazia's death, which, thank fuck, the killer could have moved away, been incarcerated for another crime, or even died. And the case went cold and was entered into Krakow's Archive X, or X-Files Department, due to lack of evidence. An X-File is a case that has been deemed unsolvable or given minimal priority status by authorities. But the team of investigators at Archive X never forgot about the case and would follow up leads as they came in. In 2012, 13 years after Kazia's remains were discovered, the case was reopened. They exhumed Kazia's remains and using the newest technology available, ran a series of new forensic tests. Authorities said, quote, evidence which we recovered after the exhumation carried out 13 years after the crime exceeded the expectations of all the prosecutors, police, and scientists, end quote. They ran a 3D body scan, and for the first time, authorities could see the extent of Kazia's external and internal injuries. The scan revealed that Kazia had been severely beaten and tortured before her death. She had multiple injuries that were similar in nature, leading pathologists to conclude that the strikes on her body were made by someone who practiced a specific type of martial art. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. They wouldn't disclose how they knew that it was made by a specific type of martial art or what type of martial art it was. Tests revealed traces of a relatively rare plant species not found in the river where the body was discovered, found on Cassia's sweater. This led police to believe that they could pinpoint the location of the crime, as this type of vegetation was only found in limited areas in the Krakow region. While these were exciting developments... It would be another five years before police finally got a substantial lead. In 2017, a woman came forward to the police to report a local man. He was a car mechanic who had served in the military and lived near the Vistula River, where Kazi's body had been found. But the thing that really rubbed this woman the wrong way was how obsessed this man seemed to be with Kazi's murder. 
going so far as to even regularly visit her grave. The man in question was 52-year-old Robert Yanishevsky, and he was known as the local weirdo. Not that that means that all local weirdos are dangerous, but, um, you know, people thought he was weird and would refer to him as a freak. Robert grew up in a dysfunctional, abusive, and obsessively religious home. At school, he was known to be a troublemaker. He didn't have many friends, as he was seen as aggressive and generally unpleasant. In his 20s, he joined the military, and for his military service, he spent time working at a morgue, where he assisted with dissections. Red fucking flag. Oh, girl, you don't even know. After the military, Yanishevsky worked with the Krakow Institute of Zoology, where he skinned and dissected animals. His employment was terminated the day after all the rabbits in his care had been found dead. When asked for an explanation, he couldn't provide one. He basically just like shrug emoji that he's like, mm, and was fired. Bro. Bro. Come the fuck on. I know. So the thing is, Robert Yanishevsky was on the police's radar in connection to Kazi's murder as early as 2000. Neighbors told police to look at Robert. They said he stalked women and dressed up in women's clothing. Police had searched Robert's apartment. When they left, his mother, who had moved back from Canada six months before Kazia's murder, witnessed strange behavior in her son. She said he rolled around on the floor and shouted that he had not murdered Kazia, that he had been set up by his gym friends. Because Robert spent a lot of time at the gym, where in addition to bodybuilding, he trained in martial arts. Ayo. Okay. All right. Ayo. Those who knew Robert said he changed after Kazia's murder. He became obsessed with religion and went to church daily. He also visited Kazia's grave at Batoviki Cemetery. Kazia's mother noticed a candle on her daughter's grave that would always be there. And once it was burnt out, it would be replaced. Police installed surveillance cameras and recorded Robert visiting the grave every night after sunset for years. What? Grala. Oh my God. Sometimes he would bring flowers. Cemetery workers said Robert also brought letters that he would bury, but police never found any of them. Robert had a couple of dysfunctional romantic relationships with women throughout his adult life. Shocking. I was just going to say, what a shocker that is. He was demanding and pedantic. He insisted that his partners be educated but subservient and that they also wear French underwear. Literally. What? Exactly. Like, okay, bro. What, what the fuck are you bringing to the table? One. Do you know what I think the French underwear might be? It might be a thing that, like, that's what he wanted to wear. Oh, okay. And is that a thong? What is that? Is that, like, the with the ruffles instead? What is French underwear even? I don't know if it's... Well, that's... I don't know if it's literally just, like, French brands. Oh. That's what I assumed it to be. <laughs> I assumed it was, like, a style and cut of underwear. Okay. That that makes sense. I just assumed it it was like French brands, which it's like whatever, because they're supposed to be like fancy or whatever the fuck. But like it, they did not specify. They not, did not get into like what the fuck that meant. That, I just assumed it to be to be a French brand. Despite the fact that he didn't amount to much career wise and was usually unemployed, Robert was said to be extraordinarily intelligent. He walked around town for hours on end. And despite the fact that he really didn't have any disposable income, he would occasionally go to the movies. Police established that this was how Robert met Kazia, walking around the market square and feigning interest in music and books. Police were able to establish that the two knew each other 
And while there's no evidence the two had a romantic relationship, Robert denies even knowing Kasia. Eat all the dicks. Then police discovered a detailed diary in which Robert wrote about women he stalked. The details of this diary entry have not been made public as it was rude classified by the prosecutor. The diary also allegedly contains an entry that describes Kasia's murder. In the days leading up to Kasia's murder, Robert met with the 23-year-old student. He flattered her, feigning a deeper connection than there actually was. They went to the movies together and talked about her favorite band. Kasia lost weight and dyed her hair blonde, as Robert preferred blondes. Fuck you. Yeah. Then date a blonde. I'm not blonde. Go yep. fuck yourself. Clearly, yep. I'm not your type. So right. fucking find somebody who is. And don't flay them either. Yeah. Yeah. Should go without saying. Uh, also, you know, you have to take into account, too, that, you know, Kazi's 23. She doesn't have any friends. So this guy's paying her attention. I get that. You know, I mean, same. <sighs> On the morning of Wednesday, November 12th, 1998, Kasia agreed to go with Robert to his cottage just north of Krakow. The couple left on a bus and arrived at the cottage that was located on a small garden. Many residents from Krakow have gardens outside of the city, and small cottages were permitted on the land. Most people visit their gardens on the weekend, however, so in the middle of the week, like on Wednesday, November 12th, it was very isolated and quiet. Nobody would have seen Robert and Kasia arrive and enter the cottage. But more importantly, no one would have heard Kasia scream. Ugh, the chills from this story, Monique. Oh, I know. Just nonstop. I know. Kasia was held captive and tortured at the cottage before her death. Once Robert had her killed and removed her skin, he fashioned the skin suit, tried it on, but it wouldn't fit, as he was a short, stocky man. He kept the bodysuit for a while before disposing of it in the Vistula River. When police searched the cottage, they found Kasia's DNA all over the bathroom, including traces of her blood in the bathtub and bath frame. Which, given that Robert denies ever even knowing Kasia, and the fact that her DNA is literally all over his fucking bathroom in his fucking cottage, it's not looking great, bro. No, you're a fucking liar, obviously. In their official report, investigators wrote, quote, It is known that Kasia was tortured before her death. The right limb over the ankle joint had to be strapped to something until finally, between December 7th and 14th, 1998, the perpetrator choked the victim with a chain. Before that, he had been giving her drugs. He also broke her femur and pelvis by punching a barbell and a bodybuilding plate. Oh my God! Stab wounds, chop wounds, and lacerations were also discovered. He probably also sexually abused her when she was dead. End quote. Oh. Back to the Future is revered now as... <laughs> I need these moments. Oh my God, okay. <laughs> as one of the most popular movies ever made. And it was pretty much that way from the very beginning. The film made Michael J. Fox a movie sensation overnight was nominated for three Academy Awards, Best Original Screenplay, Best Sound, and Best Original Song for The Power of Love, which is a great fucking song. And it took in $389 million at the box office, making it the highest grossing film of 1985. Damn. Girl. By the way, I love that you wait until I'm like 
literally physically recoiling from the screen in horror. And then she's like, maybe a fact. I'll just throw facts yeah. in right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, there's a reason why I have like, like, go on. So I was like, this is really bad. <laughs> so this is a good it's all little, real bad. <sighs> good little moment to throw in Oof. a fact. In October 2017, Robert Yanishevsky was arrested and charged with aggravated murder with particular cruelty. The Court of Appeal agreed to extend Robert's detention until September 6, 2018, while investigators gathered evidence. Because apparently how the Polish criminal judicial system works is that it's the cops who, it's not the prosecutor who gathers, oh. who makes the case, it's the cops. And that you can just have someone in prison while you build a case against them. Interesting. Yeah. So then they, can they like manipulate that so that people just stay in prison while they're like, oh, we're still looking for evidence. Like we're working on it. We'll get back to you next week. I mean, yeah, I think I I would imagine. I mean, I see how that can be problematic, but for this guy, I don't give a fuck. He needs to stay in jail forever. 10,000%. Yeah. Because he doesn't act. Okay. So 2017, he gets arrested. 2018, the court of appeals like, Sure, extend the time. Fuck it. In December of that year, Robert claimed that he was being harassed and insulted by the prison guards. This allegation caused outrage among prison guards and prosecutors. An investigation was launched, and authorities found the claims to be baseless. As a result, prosecutors added lying to the police by falsely accusing the prison guards to the charges that Robert was already facing, which, go fuck yourself. Love that. I've, yes, I support this wholeheartedly. Also, like, they're making fun of me. And you're lying about it. Like, yeah, fuck you. And if they are, you. don't murder and skin people. And then you wouldn't have this problem. Literally, you wouldn't have this problem. At the end of last year, 24 years after Katarzyna Zawada's murder, Robert Yanishevsky was sentenced to life in prison. There are those who have their doubts over the conviction. It has been said that there were unreliable witnesses that Yanishevsky's neighbors were not interviewed and that there were apparent holes in the murder timeline. Yanishevsky is hoping to appeal his conviction. The murder of Katarzyna Zawada is considered to be the most disturbing in Polish history. And despite its gruesome nature, the story of the murder never made it to American newspapers. It is often referred to as Silence of the Lambs Poland or the Skin Case. Robert Yanishevsky maintains his innocence and to this day, none of the rest of Katarzyna Zawada's remains have ever been found. And that is the nightmare-inducing, horrific story of Katarzyna Zawada. I was literally just going to say, well, I'm not going to sleep tonight unless I drink myself into oblivion, I think, because that Cheers. was traumatizing. Cheers. Yeah. Wonderfully done. Wonderfully researched and covered. I had never heard of that. Me neither. Part of me was glad I had never heard of that, but yeah, very well done. Thank you. I found it on a fucking listicle. What? Yeah. That's I where I find like 80% of my fucking stories. Same. Yeah. That was deeply disturbing, mm-hmm. but also morbidly fascinating as well. Yeah. I didn't know people made skin suits other than a game. No, no, nor should they. No. I'm not going to recommend it as a, as a craft and hobby. I don't think no. people should take that up. No, hot take. Knitting, knitting seems fine. Yeah. Yeah. Cross-stitch, hit up our girl Haley. Sup, yeah. queen? She'll teach you how to do it. Totally. <sighs> Very well done. Thank you. Kudos, but the trauma is real, Monique. 
if there was a trophy to pass on for most traumatizing, <laughs> I bequeath it to you because that was just horrendous. Thank you. That's what I was going for. <laughs> I was like, Amy's gone hard and I'm fucking soft. This is bullshit. Oh, I am very glad I did a very nice, heartwarming paranormal story. I'm really glad you did too. I think we needed that. I'm really glad you did too. Oh, damn. <laughs> that was really wild, dude. It was, yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine any of this from any perspective. No. Can you imagine her fucking mother? No. Getting that call from the police, being like, hey, um, we found a skin suit and we're pretty sure it's your daughter's who's been missing for two months. I can't imagine being the boat captain. No. Like, none of this. No. None of this. Lock me up, padded cell forever. Throw away the key. Yes. Not coming back from this. Literally. I'll take the lobotomy at this point. Like, just erase all of that, please. And thank you. <laughs> By the way, have you seen these stickers going around Instagram that say, I got, I got my lobotomy at Claire's? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I love that. And did I get my ears pierced at Claire's? I 100% did. Of course you did. Everyone did. So well the shit. Thank you so much for your story. I love your story so much. I hated slash loved yours as well. I loved all of the Back to the Future facts. Thank you so much for that. I needed that like nobody's business. I think it's a good day to watch Back to the Future. Yeah, I support that. Yeah. If even fucking Reagan liked it. Fucking State of the Union. There you go. Fuck. And thank you guys so much for listening. If you still are, if you haven't tapped out, uh, I totally don't judge you and respect if you did. This is another fucking horror podcast. I'm Monique Sanchez. And I'm Amy Traden. You can find me on the gram at pinupgirlmo. You can find me at lobotomy and that's lobot period Amy. Follow the show on the gram too. We put on some fun stuff on there and uh, you'll see some of some of the skin suit. I don't know if you want to see that, but God. morbid curiosity. You can find us at another fucking horror podcast. Every sixth episode, we do a True Listener Tales episode where we read your true crazy stories. So if you have one or you just want to say hi, email us at anotherfuckinghorrorpodcast at gmail.com with a period instead of the you and fucking. Guys, thanks so much. We're so fucking obsessed with you. Keep it cute. Keep it creepy. Bye. Bye.